Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast. The podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. Now, as we wait for Ridley Scott's much-anticipated Napoleon film, if you're listening at the time of recording... It's out imminently. Um, I think it's two days. I think it's November 22nd. It comes out over here in the UK. Me and Matt are going to watch it um, in a few days' time, and we'll be bringing you our review next week. So stay tuned for that one. Um, if you're listening post, uh, post-release, post then that's already out. Please go and listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> but we were thinking of, of a film we could do in the interim. We had a week to spare. And, uh, and Matt uh, messaged me one evening. He was going, Robbie, I'm watching... A quite an interesting flick and i was like oh yeah what are you watching matt and matt shows this week it is 1976's shout at the devil yeah now it sounds like a horror film when you listen when you hear the name don't you a little bit a little bit yeah um but it's actually sorry it's actually an adventure film in many ways an adventure war hybrid um so i'll get into production and we'll learn a little bit more about shout at the devil so the film is based upon Wilbur Smith's novel of the same name that was originally released in 1968, with the film rights to a lot of Smith's books being uh, bought at the time by British producer Michael Klinger. Now, he also bought the rights to um, Gold as well at the time. And Gold was another more fronted movie. We'll get to cast later. Um, but that was released in 1974. And Klinger himself uh, produced 1971's Get Carter, among other projects. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and the film was directed by Peter R. Hunt, a British director, editor and producer. His credits include, um, for editing, Killing Career, Sink the Bismarck, HMS Defiant, Doctor No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and The Ipcrest File, to name a few. Um, Holy hell. I know, what a what a, what a back catalogue there. Um, and then he directed uh, The Wild Geese 2, Gold, as previously mentioned, and in 1969, Her Majesty on Her Majesty's Secret Service. He directed the the best the best bomb film. Wow! I'm throwing that out that's there. That's going to cause some controversy. I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's a very that's a cracking career. What, wasn't a, it? what a back car! What a back catalogue there. Yeah, I know, right? Some absolute classics in there. Um. And the film was originally announced in 1969, um, but it took a hell of a long time to get funding. They originally wanted to use Cinerama, um, film in the Cinerama, um, uh, what's the word? Um, format. Format, yeah, sorry, film it in the Cinerama format. But that fell through as at the time, I think American studios were apprehensive on uh, sort of like projects that they weren't too sure that were going to be a hit and they, they wanted hits. And I think Cinerama had some maybe financial issues around the time as well. So it just fell through. Um, But the film was eventually put into production in the the mid-70s, with Klinger himself calling it a combination of the African Queen and the guns of Navarone. And I think that's a fair... I think that's a fair comparison. Not bad. It's essentially like... It's like three movies in one. So much happens in this, um, if Mm. you haven't seen it. I mean, it's freely available to watch on YouTube as well, which is great this week. No idea how, but it's on one of those channels that uploads... 
full films with they teethy rips. The, I, and I th- they must have the license to it because it's been up there the for licenses. an awfully long time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because um, this isn't... I mean, unless you're like a more aficionado or a Marvin aficionado, this one could just easily pass you by, I think. Well, this is what I was thinking about when you were doing the intro. Like, I we've we've done films with with um, with Moore and, and Marvin mm. in the past, not together, but we've done them. And mm. whenever we've done cast, we've um, we've always run down their various films. And this one's always been one that I've I've picked out of their films yeah. and gone. I've never seen that. That sounds like a romp. And it turns out it is. <laughs> no, it is. Uh, it really, really is. Um, so uh, cinematography was by Michael Reed, who worked as a camera operator at Hammer Films early in his career before going uh, going on to become a, a DOP on larger projects. He worked this on... This is you tell me he worked on Steel Bayonet, isn't it? No, no, no. Oh, no, he didn't, unfortunately. That would have been great. Carry he on. worked on 1959's Captured um, by John Krish, which is oh. the Korean War prisoner of war movie. Um, it was made for the uh, British military intelligence and it was famously, it wasn't banned, but it was, it was um, restricted for a long time. And there was a BFI release on um, Blu-ray a few years ago. I've got it in the FOF HQ film collection and we are going to plan on doing that one soon because that's a very interesting docudrama. Very interesting. Um, I think it's, it's up got, on the Imperial War Museum. Um, it is. Yeah, it's on there now. as well, too. isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's got Wilfred Bramble in it too from Steptown Sun. Yeah, I won't do the impression I was thinking of doing it. Uh, <laughs> I've been kept. No, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> I will. Uh, and he would also go on, to, uh, go on to be a DOP on 23 episodes of The Saint. Nice little more reference mm, there. Nice link. Um, and, and on Her Majesty's Secret Service too. Cool. So, so some real, uh, you know, friends calling upon friends in this one. Um, the mm. Mackenzie break and Von Richthofen and Brown. So there's some, mm. some good pedigree there. Um, it was filmed on location in Malta and very controversially apartheid South Africa at the time. Um, I know Moore was heavily criticised at the time because he'd done gold uh, the year, a couple of years before. Um, and then he would later go and shoot um, parts of the wild geese in South Africa too. So it was quite controversial at the time. Um, at, with a shooting period of 15 weeks in mid-1975, the South African locations were shot in and around Port St. John. Um, and the parts of the film are based on the sinking of SMS Königsberg in 1915. Um, very, very loosely, I might add. There's almost nothing to do with the First World War in this movie. It's kind of just shoehorned in right near the end. <laughs> war, war just gets declared and it just happens to be... Yeah, they yeah. happen to read... Because they're having their own private little war, aren't they're they? They're having a private really? war, yeah. And they happen to read a memo about an hour and a half in and they learn that the war's been declared which was i quite enjoyed that so i was like oh yeah they don't have they don't have telephones <laughs> not not know where <laughs> they were <laughs> the movie was produced by tonav films this seems to be the only tonav film produced i think it was maybe a company-based uh setup to shoot this movie um and it was distributed in the uk by hemdale film corporation and in the us by american international pictures who were owned by mgm at the time um, 13th of April 76 released in the UK and 27th of November in the US uh, 50 minutes were cut from the original edit um, and I think you can tell near the end there's a, quite a lot of cutting um, that yeah. seems to just happen um, and a large sea battle between British and German warships was left out of the screenplay um, that's in the book due to budget restraints and talking of budget the film was shot for nine million, and it was a big success in the UK, earning fifteen million at the box office. However, overseas, it only grossed three million US dollars, but that's a pretty decent return. I think they probably broke even. Yeah. Um, and then after this, there's a bit of a souring between Klinger and Wilbur Smith. Um, they were meant to create more movies based on Smith books. However, it all ended in litigation, um, and I couldn't find any concrete um, information on that. But it did end a little bit sour between the author and the producer. Mm. So we should, we could have got more Smith films, um, but we just didn't. Um, but the film was, again, controversial and derided upon release. Um, there was a lot of sort of feeling that the movie had a lot of old... It just felt old to some people, and then some people couldn't get over yeah. the fact that it was shot dated. in South Africa. Um, there is an instance of blackface in this movie, which incredibly dates it, I must admit. Um, I was kind of shocked to see it, but... Yeah, it's of its time, and we'll just say that now. The movie is very, very of its time. Um, 
But anyway, our, re- our retro review this week comes from Roger Ebert, uh, November 11th, 1976. And he says, Shout at the Devil is a big, dumb, silly movie that's impossible to dislike. It's so cheerfully corny, so willing to involve its heroes in every possible predicament that after a while we relax. Um, this is the kind of movie they used to make back when audiences were supposed to have the mentality of a 12-year-old, and it's great to be 12 again. The movie doesn't mess around. Marvin and Moore are well cast. Marvin plays the drunk with an exuberance he brought to the same role in Cat Baloo and Paint Your Wagon. Who else can roll his eyes so meaningfully over a bottle of gin? Moore is so proper, so reserved and detached that even in retreat, he seems to be strolling. Shout at the devil isn't great cinema, but it's great fun. I would agree with that. That's a that's a solid review. I, I it's interesting, isn't it? It it kind of harks back to those classic adventure films in a yeah. lot of ways. But as we'll talk about later on, it has this startling flip change in tone. Yeah. About, about two thirds of the way through. And um I I don't know about you, but I think the film it works and I think the film's the better for it because it removes it from being a straight adventure movie in a lot yeah. of ways it mm, adds it, a more it, it adds a darker stakes. tone yeah mm. it definitely gives you some stakes to cling on to near the end um when the movie kind of feels like it should be wrapping up it, it ramps itself up a bit and i can't mm. i did enjoy that mm. but what did you guys think as always we turn to you for the one word reviews um you can find those on twitter now known as x um every monday sunday before we record please get involved um, so we start with World War II TV's Paul Woodage. He says, underrated. Eddie Bond goes with Epic. Brian Williams goes with Fleischer. Ian McKellen says, Wunderbar. Martin W. Proto Bond. Tony Pollard, Königsberg. Joe Skinner says, Boozy. Uh, Military History Observer goes with Zanzibar. Pete the Paint, Revenge. And Nick Carriavias goes with Boy's Own. Mark F. goes with Good. Barry North goes with Mohammed. More about him in the uh, cast. And finally, we'll end with Andy Cambridge, who says fun. So I think the general consensus there is pretty on the level. I know some people said it, a couple of people said they didn't enjoy it. But I think this is one of the one of those kind of movies, if you've seen it and you can accept it for what it is, I think I think you have a fun time. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's one of those Saturday afternoon films. Yeah, almost. Yeah, it really is. Almost. But moving into cast, we've got Lee Marvin as Flynn Patrick O'Flynn, and he's a kind of. What a name. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's a, a sort of philandering uh, crook that is always on the lookout to make a fast book. Um, yeah. And the crooks to the film at the beginning is that he ropes in Roger Moore's character um, to be the face of a. Of a um, ivory uh expedition yeah uh into german territory and he thinks that having a brit along will um protect him from the the wrath of the the, the germans it's hilarious um, <laughs> so you know we've had we've had um ample uh lee marvin on the show over the years we have. uh he began his career in the 50s um he was in eight iron men in 1952 he was in the glory brigade in 1953 um became mutiny in 54 attack in 56 uh he was in the professionals which we've covered on the show and love in 1966 um in 1967 of course he was in the dirty dozen he was sergeant Riker in 68 he was in hell in the pacific uh um and then in 1980 he was in the big red one and then finally um he was in uh, a number of the uh dirty dozen sequels and of course, in 1986, he was also in Delta Force with Chuck Norris. Famously. He was. He was. How topical um, as we go into December. More on that soon, l- folks, if you're listening. Kind of linked, but not really. It's anyway. tenuous. It, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's all you're getting before you see the artwork, guys. <laughs> on, the, on the socials. Keep your eye out. December's coming hot and fast. Then we have uh, our second lead, which is Roger Moore, who plays Sebastian Oldsmith, who is a aristocratic uh, upper class brit oldie tony and type yeah yeah is on his way to australia to look after sheep because his family has bundled him away he's just taking uh, a cushy job isn't he <laughs> well it seems so doesn't it yeah or at least what's been sold to him as one um, yeah exactly yeah 
He was in Ivanhoe, The Alaskans, Maverick, and The Saint before becoming Bond in 1973. As Rob mentioned, he previously appeared in Gold. Um, he was in The Wild Geese in 1978. He was in Escape to Athena in 1979. North Sea Hijack in the same year. Sea Wolves a year later. And in 1997, of course, he was in Spice World. Then we've got... <laughs> I've, hang on, I've got, I've got a great thing about Go more on. that I found. So this is from Ian Holmes' book, Acting My Life from 2004. And I'll, there's another piece from it I want to say when Matt gets to Ian Holm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apparently they were flying to a location um, into the Kruger National Park in South Africa. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll read from here Ian's uh, account. So he says, we hit bad weather and we had to fly through cloud for 40 minutes or so, during which time the small plane bucked and reared alarmingly. Most of us were quiet and pensive, contemplating the worst, though willing it not to happen. But more squirmed and whimpered for most of the journey. Eventually, he lay on his back and started to undo his trousers. Then his hand disappeared down the front of them. What the fuck are you doing, Roger? snarled Marvin, who was accustomed to Roger's clowning around. If I'm going to heaven, Moore replied. If the actor, I want to go with a smile on my face. That's, that's <laughs> it's like it's it's like he's in the room. It's like it's in the room. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> that's not that's not Roger Moore. That's Peter Sessions doing Roger Moore from Yeah, of from course. Stella all Street. the best impressions are other people's impressions of someone else. I know. Well, I just thought that was incredible. Just like uh, what, a what a story. A, wow. What a thing to Wow, to I, have. I, I what a thing to did, have happened. Did, does Ian know whether um Roger managed to achieve his aviation climax? It, it just stops there. I assume okay. I assume they I assume them sort of judging him stopped them. I can't think Marvin would have allowed that to happen. No, but apparently they got on quite well. Um they mm. had a shared love of Jack Daniels and uh more had some shipped in from Johannesburg uh to the Amazing. actual shooting location and they, they I'm had making a, couple a little of bit of money now, Marvin. I can get the Jack Daniels in on the bond he, money. He's got that bond money. Um, and they they whiled away evenings together. Um, so they apparently got on really well. Mm. But speaking of um, Roger and his um, urges, uh, uh, we've got uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got Barbara Parkins as uh, Rosa O'Flynn, Rosa Oldsmith, uh, and uh, she is uh, Roger's love interest in the film, uh, who he marries and has a daughter with. Or a child with, I forget. Um, she was a Canadian American actress. Um, she began work in the early sixties, and she was in lots of film and TV roles, lots of um, guest appearances, and that sort of thing over the years. Then we have Ian Holm as Mohammed, who is O'Flynn's mute servant. Which is great. The story, it is. The story goes that uh, Mohammed was saved by O'Flynn from Fleischer um, after he was hung from a tree. Uh, and left to die. Right. Is yeah, that why he's why obsessed he with hanging speak. people in the movie? Yes. I get reason. it now. He wants to hang the Ascaris and the Germans. Yeah, that part um, is hilarious. And possibly, and possibly some of the um, the, the, local <laughs> the locals tribes as well. Yeah. He has no issue with he doing that. No it's chill, does he? Wild, isn't it? He, he um, just bring. He just brings like such a levity to that role. Like I, I, I love how he's the comic relief in certain parts. It's mm. just so good. Um, Always handing. Leah Jin. Oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah. He just knows what he needs. I've got another great little uh, if you if you indulge me a moment, I've got another home a home um what's the word? Recollection. So uh, f- again from Ian Holmes acting my life. Um so Holm apparently took the role to escape his then girlfriend B, who admittedly he'd been having an affair with at the time. Um and she phoned him on set and said, Your little ivory tower has collapsed. I know about your affairs and I'm having one too. So upon learning this, um, Holm was really like, quite cut up. He was crying on set, really upset. Um, oh, no, so Marvin I'm having saw... to reap what I've sown. I know, exactly. Terrible. Yeah. My, my chicken's coming home to roost. Um, so Marvin saw him crying um, and apparently said this, and I'll read verbatim. As I blubbed, Marvin gazed at me with the kind of blank, chilling hostility that was somehow softened by understanding and an inexpressible desire to be kind. He stroked my hair and said this, Ian, let me tell you one thing. We all go through an awful lot of fucking in this life. Amazing. Holm was I, saying he was worried how Marvin would take it because he knew he was this like war hero turned like for a rugged actor. And he was like, I, I didn't want him to see me upset. Oh, it's just great. 
again, I would have loved to have had a drink with Lee Marvin. Who wouldn't? Yeah. Getting back to cast, uh, Holm was in The Bofors Gun in 1968, Oh What a Lovely War, uh, the year after. He was in March, uh, March or Die, which we've done on the show in 1977. Yep. Uh, famously, he was in Alien in 1979. He was Napoleon in Time Bandits in 1981. Amazing. Uh, inside the uh, Third Reich, the HBO, I think, or the TV miniseries in 1982. Lord of the Rings, of course. And in 2005, he was in Lord of War with Nick Cage. Yeah. A late, late actor they died a couple of years ago. Shame to see him go. Yeah. One of the yeah. greats. Mm. And then we have uh, Hermann Fleischer, who is played by Rene uh, Kolderhoff and... Uh, he plays the the German commander of the province, uh, who is the main antagonist. Yeah. German actor. He actually began uh, acting uh, during uh, the, the the war in Germany. He was in lots of thrillers and film noir. Uh, he was also in Stalingrad Dogs. Do you want to live forever? In 1959. Wow. At uh, the court martial in the same year. The Atlantic Wall in 1970. Operation Daybreak in 1975. Soldier of Orange in 1977 and The Winds of War in 1983. That's quite pretty much rounds out cast. And yes, he does have quite a pretty interesting career in terms of war movies. He he does. He he plays a role like an evil version of Baron Bombburst in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That's the only thing I could think of when I was watching it. Yeah, heavy vibes of that, yeah. He's the colonial... Villain version mm. of that of the Baron from Chitty Bang. Kept like. expecting an Ascari to walk behind him, going like, boom, tch, boom, tch, boom, tch. yeah. <laughs> he was. It's great though. He, he brings this sort of bumbling cartoonishness to the movie. Where, yeah, he, I know you're not meant to take him seriously, but he's the big bad. It's mm-hmm. it's very good. And then again, he flips too, and it goes a little bit yeah. dark. And we'll talk about that a in a moment. It does get a bit dark. But for now, mm. I think it's time for the alley telling. It is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. Ali Tally this week, it's a pre- World War One that becomes a World War One movie, which is mm. rare. We've not done that, and we've not done many films that have c- colonial troops in. So that no. was nice to see. Yeah, um, so, and they're armed with Martini Henry carbines, uh, with Webleys in it, Vickers guns, cannons, biplanes. Um, but for me, my my favourite thing in the alley tally this week is uh, Lee Marvin in a pith helmet with a three hundred three bandolier round his waist. Mm. Um, when they when they sort of get to the more warrior parts, um, he just looks great. Like it's just it's Lee Marvin. Like he, he doesn't Lee look, on a look, Lee. look cool. Lee on a Lee, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure Matt will talk about it. But the the section where he's drilling the the his the colonial troops under his command, um, it's just it's just a classic Lee scene. It's it's just so mm. good. Yeah, it's one of my faves. I might talk about that later on. Mm. Um, but there's all sorts in this. There's hunting double rifles. Um, the Germans um, have Gewehr 98s. It's um, nice, yeah. As you mentioned, there's a few Martini Henry carbines in the background, SMLEs as well. Uh, there's a German lieutenant who has a Luger. Fleischer himself blasts after Lee with a um, Mauser C96. Brumandl. It's not yeah. a gun, it's a Brumandl Mauser. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rosa uh, has a, a Webley Mark uh six uh yeah who and she coldly dispatches a german prisoner with that she um, really really blows him away doesn't she, she does with it? Yeah. she puts all six in him <laughs> um the 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 lee that lee has is a charger loading lee enfield um one of the long boys yeah. not the short magazine lee he enfield brings his, he has the stance 
that he uses in the professionals to fire his repeater with. Mm. Like he never he uh, of course, as we know from talking to talking to Jim Dowdle a, f- a few months back, like we just mm. Lee is the gun guy. Like he just yeah. is, you know, he's ex-US Marine, like it it's that's Lee. Um and he just it's it just never leaves him, does it? It's just it's just no, so great has, to see. Well, I'll talk about it now because he has that physicality of that's just it. He just looks right what behind a gun on screen. He just brings mm. this physical presence to the way he handles guns on screen. And the bit that um that Rob mentioned is, is he's training these fake Ascari uh, who it. he's gonna send Roger off with into the into the uh into the um the tribal areas to to rustle up some funds by collecting fake taxes. Yes. And um well, give, they give out the money though, don't they? They do. They end up giving out the money. That's the That's it. part. Yeah, um, yeah. So the 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 Lee gives him like a, a chest that he's supposed to fill with some walking around money just to show that he's already collected some. Yeah. Um, and he ends up that all the all the locals feign you know poverty and and they're starving and such, and it just ends up with Roger giving away the money to the to the locals, yeah. which is great. Um. But that scene where Lee's training the the fake Ascari, um, and one of them accidentally puts a round through his gin bottle. Um, yeah. Great comic reaction from him, and oh, then yeah, he just, just runs that that charge loading Lee Enfield like a boss, and he just cleans house of. I don't think that's six an extra. Targets. I think that's that's either blank and the prop department, you know, making them explode, or that's Lee really shooting them. Like I couldn't work it out. Uh, I mean, he could do that, but I, it was it was probably blank, just so they got it. I think it probably was, but it just looks Maybe. great, doesn't it? Like, you know, ev- everyone, everyone with a rifle in this movie looks great. Even the, um, spoiler alert, but like it's from nineteen seventy six, crikey! Um, at, at the end, when Moore takes out Fleischer with the Lee Enfield, mm-hmm. it's brutal. Like it, yeah. Moore on it, Moore's never looked better. I think. No, I'm that's say very now, true. I think this, I think this is Moore's greatest non-bond role, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it's up there. Solid. You can make, right. you make a case for it. Even better than North Sea hijacking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that movie it, bored me to death because he was barely in it. He was barely it in film. it. You know. Um, I like the scene where um, more blasts away at the blucher as it's about to ram the the ship That's he's cool. got like a Gewehr 98 and he's just yeah. shooting at the, this barrel this it's just massive fun. impending the whole, ship it's it a is. fun romp isn't it a um, um, couple of other things before we move on the, there's a Vickers FB5 pusher plane um, yes there is That's which really they nice. find the blucher with and the the final scene with Lee um, the uh, well it's also seen in um, the scene with the, the pusher plane it, it's used to shoot at the plane but there's a, a Vickers gun playing the part of a Maxim, and it's a single arch smooth jacket Vickers with a fake conical flash hider added to the um, the, the blank adapter at the front. Of the nice gun. Vickers spotting there. Nice. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was just um, a regular old Vickers. Yeah. Regular and, and Maxim, Marvin yeah. on it again. M- Marvin just takes it on at the end and holds off yeah. the the German <laughs> Kriegsmarine. Yeah. Like it's just yeah. oh, it's just so good. It's just brilliant. It really is. Like you know, and shout out the bit where. The bit where Lee has to uh, nearly fight that man in the in the costume, which I called a crocstume, because it was like a, <laughs> a crocodile or an alligator, and it just I couldn't work out whether it was stop motion or if it was a guy in a suit. But you know, like the old monster movies where they like they sort yeah. of really badly yeah. animate them like that, and it just <laughs> took me out of the scene. <laughs> but it was great, like, and I think mentioning all these little parts shows you how wild this movie is. It fits oh yeah everything it can in it's um, some of its parts as well isn't it yeah it is it, re- it really really is um i think uh final shout out for me is we've never had a river boat shoot out on the pod yet a, pa- a paddle steamer versus a <laughs> like a little river boat yeah yeah and that's true yeah we haven't um it's so fun like it's <laughs> it, there's only it's so hard to describe this movie <laughs> So they for the film they built they built a full size half replica of a German battleship. They built the um or they acquired the the the, the plane and then they they um they brought in the steamboat as well. Yeah. And then they built a whole fort 
the German fort. <laughs> it gets used like twice. Yeah, in two like very brief shots, and then there's a homestead set. Um, but there's there's a bit of scale to it, and I appreciate mm. that. I think it works no, really, really well. It really, really is. Yeah, and I like all the the rifles that Lee has in his office. Yeah, and, when like, he opens that door, and... that's great. Yeah, it's so nice. Yeah, it's it's just it. The alley tally might not be fantastic this week because there's nothing really i could really pin that i loved but like it's so much going on it's such a rich stew of things um yeah. that it all really really works and it's proper boys own stuff isn't it like it's just it great is. it really really is so i think talking of that boys ownness of it maybe we should move into favorite scenes matt your favorite scene i think mine is lee on the maxim um on at the end of the film he goes out like a don uh he has he his he has his wild bunch moment hosing down the German sailors as they're coming on. Um, and he holds them off until the uh, the ship explodes. But if you've never seen this film and you listen to how we, we've talked about this film, just the various little scenes, it must sound insane. We because... do our classic FOF review where we don't we don't hundred percent review something. We leave we we this is the thing, we like to leave you <laughs> hoping that you'll go away and watch the movie we don't want to just go right scene one scene two scene three scene four there's no point no. because you can see the movie yeah um we'll be here all it, day as well exactly the, the episode will be longer than the film yeah exactly um, that, well that'd be quite something um <laughs> but it, yeah it it's madcap there's so much going on here but yeah i i like that um and again lee just looks convincing behind that gun um it's just it's, it's Lee great. Marvin like I've said it before yeah. like it, it's Lee Marvin you know what you're getting he and I think his his turn from like serious to to comic to bewildered to drunk like it's all so seamless like it's mm. it's everything you yeah. get in a Marvin performance you've got it here it's it's just great I also really like the the battle on the hill where they attack the the the, the column that's moving up uh, mm-hmm. parts to fix the blucher that was good um and it's like a long range rifle battle they open fire quite a, quite a, a range and cause chaos and the there's a german lieutenant that gets dragged down the hill face first yeah um there's a bit where it's suggested that an ascari is going to be decapitated by a sliding sheet of steel that falls off one of the the uh the sleds that they're pulling uh, it's just big scale and in in moore's um autobiography my my bond my word is my bond um he talks about the filming of that scene and he says they were all stood at the bottom of this hill in a gully and as he was stood there and he he was watching them up at the top of that hill which is quite a big hill Mm. um and they were preparing these two big um essentially they're like big um big wheels i guess you call yeah, them like pull it, pulling the yeah yeah, yeah. They're, they're like they're like um large they look like those wooden wheels that industrials like they spool up industrial yeah like on. a spool yeah like a cotton like yeah. a cotton reel type yeah but anyway yeah so it that holds like parts and they're, they're rolling them towards the blue anyway um and he realized that they're all stood where this was destined to come rolling down the hill so he he, he grabbed the radio and he told um the director like we're all stood here like should we move everyone that isn't needed i um, think we should that... move yes thank you thanks roger and um <laughs> no problem matthew <laughs> <laughs> and um they move all the people and then roger realizes that they've moved them even closer to where the thing's going to be <laughs> and he has to get on the radio again and get them all moved again but his autobiography is really good. I would recommend it. There's a couple yeah. of bits I'll mention later on um, that, that are really quite quite good. But I like that scene. It, it has a bit of scale. It's an interesting uh, concept of them being on a hill, dragging something, and uh, and, it, and it causing chaos. I just mm. nice little set piece. No, it really, it really is. Every 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 scene in this is is well executed. I don't think there there's a weak part to the movie. Well, I might talk about it later, but there's no necessarily weak set pieces. Um, mm. It all gets a, it all gets what it's going for. So my favourite scene this week um, it has got to be the fight between Flynn and Sebastian. Um, yeah, and it's it's just so it's so good. It's it's funny. It's 
it's slapstick it's keystone cops it, uh, but it's also quite brutal like it's everything you want in a sort of western style cowboy fight scene so the the, inst- the instigating uh, issue is that uh, uh sebastian falls in love with rosa and he asks for flynn's hand uh in marriage like to give his the, the, the daughter's hand in marriage but the the, the real problem is that Flynn has is going to swindle money from Sebastian after they've captured this box of German um, funds, um, yeah. and and Lee starts the hit the fighting by hitting him in in the in the in the in the private area, shall we say? Um, and he says, and, and Rose is like, "How could you hit him there?" And Marvin goes, "Well, he's not the one pregnant," um, which is fantastic, um, and it just turns into this proper proper like bar fight, and you've got you've got a. Uh, um, Marvin sort of uh, learns that, that Sebastian was a Queensbury rules boxer at Eton and he's like footwork my boy footwork and that comes up a few times it's some great dialogue in the scene um and it's it's just very funny like you get a, a bit where Marvin hits a, a wooden post and he, he's giving it the whole like my hands all broken and and he's like oh you sure you want to stop like you should stop now like you go get while the going's good type thing it's just Marvin and Moore sell that really really well and I watching it a few times i don't think there's many instances where there's stunt doubles like they're doing that and it's obviously well in in um in moore's book he he talks about them rehearsing it for quite a while ah um and then when they came to do it lee was apparently red-eye drunk like you can see it was, in, a, in the film he was, <laughs> yeah, definitely four sheets he was approaching like blackout drunk um he'll expect nothing less when they came to do it more essentially had to duck real punches so he was in essentially a real fight with with lee marvin <laughs> marvin's just um, going for it marvin just yeah, he was apparently yeah. there's lots of anecdotes in in uh in moore's book where he talks about he, lee would be you know sober one day and he'd chat to like um a member of the the supporting cast and be, they'd be like pally and like old friends um exchanging stories and then the, you know he'd come on set and uh at another point and he'd be pretty much done like sozzled and um gazebo'd he, he yeah he'd tell the guy <laughs> to like do one and like have a full-blown art like oh my god hateful argument with the dude how true that is i don't know but as i said most books pretty good actually yeah there's some great, good anecdotes, there is some on great it. anecdotes in it um but it's just it, it's a scene for me that encapsulates how well Moore and Marvin were cast, and there's a chemistry there that you wouldn't expect. You wouldn't expect Roger Moore, like you know, this is this is th- what three years into his Bond work, um, yeah. coming off of the Saint, you know, being this really sort of a certain way of acting, a little bit Niven-esque, where you're getting more of Moore than you maybe are of a character in certain movies, um, and you've got Marvin, and you, on paper you think Marvin and Moore, like. Is this yeah, going to work? It doesn't work, yeah. And then the chemistry is just so well done. And I think the fight scene really shows you, like, there's these two actors who have, you know, Moore's obviously got fight training from Bond and probably the same. Marvin's coming from years of Westerns and, and these rugged roles. And it just brings mm. these two characters. Essentially, they're not character actors, but you, you know what I mean by that. It brings these two powerhouses, like, in into their element. And it's just a sort of such a great fight scene if there's a if there's not there's not another scene in this movie that encapsulates how well this movie works it, it, it is that fight scene for me it's cemented like those characters it's, for me. yeah it, it's physical it's funny it's very well done um yeah i also read uh roy mosley's biography of Moore, and in that he quotes uh peter hunt the director and he says they were very funny together and liked each other a great deal. They would socialize and get drunk together in the evenings. And although they never had thick heads in the morning, which mm, that, that might be a little bit, a little bit of a white lighter, Pia. Um, <laughs> um, but Roger, Roger really enjoyed his time with him. Um, at one of the, uh, the the press premieres, he he said, "I love this gentleman. He brought out one of the you know best performances I've ever done." Um, I agree yeah exactly and it it shows it, it it really does it really really does so moving into final thoughts hello i'm al murray and you're listening to fighting on film the world's number one war film podcast this is a strange movie to like sum up but it's it's part 
as as I said, Guns and Navarone, part African Queen. But to me, it's like drawing from uh, the man who would be king, uh, the wind and the lion. And then in there, you've got these comedic elements that feel like they could be from ripping yarns from the 80s. I mean, I know yeah. our audience would know what that is. It's uh, Terry Jones and, and Michael Palin. Was it Michael? Terry Jones and Palin? Mm-hmm. I think it was. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is this sort of boys' own adventure, sort of uh, like Kipling-esque adventure type uh, TV yeah, like show that they did post. Yeah, of Kipling and stuff. Yeah, wasn't like a post, uh, post-Python. Uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus, original run. And it's it's got all that in there, and it just it just kind of works. Like there's there's so much in there for it's like a crowd pleasing movie, isn't it? There's something for everyone. There's mm. more and Marvin a great great cast. You've got these great set pieces. You've got a, a cracking fight scene. You've got some good shootouts. There's this whole sort of colonialism of it. The sort of the world's going to change. You know, you know the stakes. Or you know how the war's going to change everything. Yeah, it's, it's got a lot in there. But then also, I mean, I know we're going to talk about it now, but then also it it gets to a point and the stakes just are raised and it becomes a revenge film and you're not expecting it at all. No, you're like, not. Of course, if that you read the book, changes you just, are. Oof. But about an hour and 40 in, Fleischer and his um and his colonial army, uh, colonial army, um, they, they, they mass because the war's been declared and now they know they've got carte blanche to essentially do what they want. Um, with with minimal repercussions, um, and and also they're going to go and help repair the Bluka. Um, but he sets about uh, Flynn's uh, homestead. When Flynn's away, he doesn't know Flynn isn't there. He's out on a on an ivory ivory hunt. Um, and in the he's process, he's destroying of, the German fort when they destroying when the German fort. Out, yeah. yeah, so they're destroying his fort while he's destroying theirs. It's like a nice little parallel. But during that sequence, um, Rose's baby is killed. Yeah. Off off screen, I might add, it's done quite tastefully. But after that, it it becomes a revenge film, and yeah, and then the it's last... kind of in, insinuated that it's thrown into a burning building, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's it's, it's hard. You're it's, not it expecting it, and it no, it hits, and it, mm. it it's quite a well shot sequence, as you say. I agree, and, it, mm. and from there on, the film is a lot, lot darker. It is darker. It is, yeah, and she's you, consumed you... with you know grief Anger. and the desire yeah. for revenge and more has it in his own way but he, he also sees a slightly bigger picture um there's a, a a bit just before he flies off to find the blue car, um he says you need once this is over you need to come back to me essentially that's it um, yeah. and she's just not there yet roger no, she's <laughs> like uh, she's we need not to, she's not ready you know, for that let, let's get revenge for this baby that we've you know it's just been taken from us and then we can think yeah. about the future eh? yeah. yeah you know and i like that because she grounded that part of the movie there because it because mm. it still tries the comedic element but it doesn't do it as much after that sequence and i was pleased of that then you still get quite a funny scene where uh where because all the way through essentially flynn's setting up sebastian to do the stuff he doesn't want to do. Um, so uh, Flynn sets up with the Royal, the Royal Navy for essentially Sebastian to go and put a bomb on the ship. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and they all like, and the Royal Navy work out they can bribe Flynn to do what they want with booze, which is hilarious. Um, just so There's great. some great bits in Zanzibar where the, he gets given like a very small glass of gin. Yeah. Plymouth gin. And he, and he, he looks gives, at the, it, he gives the guy a look. It's great. <laughs> It's so great. I, I love the subtext of his alcoholism all the way through it. And we know that you know Lee liked to drink, but you know the scene where Marvin holds the baby and yeah. Roger Moore looks physically concerned yes. about Lee doing this. So there's a there's a funny anecdote about that in uh, in Roger's book. Um and he says, Um I remember being terrified in the scene when Grandpa O'Flynn was to pick up his young grandchild for the first time. As Lee, well known for his hard drinking, was six sheets to the wind and picked up the baby without supporting his head. Um, wow. Let, let me assure you, my look of concern wasn't purely acting. The boy has been crying like that. Sorry, let me go again. The boy had been crying like no tomorrow. But then suddenly, when Lee picked him up, he stopped. The reason? Lee breathed 200% proof. Uh, let me go. Lee breathed 200% vodka fumes all over him. I often wonder if there was a 30-something man in Port St. John 
who had grown up to be an alcoholic. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, yeah. Marvin is the baby it, whisperer right there. You watch that scene, though, and you can see there is a, a genuine amount of concern when <laughs> Marvin picks up yeah. the baby. <laughs> it's great. Like just get, the, anec- the anecdotes are making that, this. Uh, yeah, the the anecdotes are no problem, Matthew. The um the anecdotes are uh, are making this episode for me. This it's so great when we get we get we get a biography where someone's really gone into detail about yeah, their experiences. Because yeah. sometimes you read these autobiographies and it's like, and then I did this film, and then I did that film, and there's no yeah. in between. But I love I love that more home and Marvin had really wrote about this movie. You can tell how much they enjoyed it from that. You know, you don't hold on to bad memories. You hold on to good ones. Um, so that, you know, that comes through. Um, but then we come to sort of my issues with it. And they're not major. But I think talking about that tonal shift at the end, the movie feels like it's going to wrap up in a way. But then as a viewer, I was thinking, well, how can you wrap it up? Because so much has happened, but yet not a lot has happened at the same time. Yeah. And then this shoot, it doesn't shoehorn it, but this whole... World War One started. Now we need to go and blow up the ship. That element there for me, that's that's essentially the second half of the movie. And I felt what had been quite this rattling adventure tale was really well paced. I felt that ending dragged just a little bit, just a tiny bit. Um, that's interesting. That's minor. I, it's minor. I think for me, I I felt it was a little bit rushed because of the way that it had been cut. Rushed. I know might what be you mean word. about. I know what you mean about dragging. It doesn't have that pace. So no. compared to the first half of the film, it doesn't have that pace, which it you know ambles along nicely. The second part of the film, kind of, it's there's cuts that make it feel just not as well. Mm. And polished, this is where that fifty minute being cut out, I think, maybe comes into yeah. play, where they've had to, to make an ending off of this much more elaborate ending. Um, and you know, maybe having a sea battle in there might have helped to, to t- explain well, why they need done. to go and blow the blucher up themselves. And there's some great model work in the film um, mm. from Derek Meddings. We didn't mention him in production, but he worked on lots of Bond films: Aces High, Joe Nighy, Thunderbirds, Wow, UFO, Stingray. Um, and there's some Stingray. great little. Dana, Dana. Can't say it about saying that. And there's lots of. Um, nice little model shots in there when the blue cuts the the uh the dow in half mm. and um a couple of other bits and bobs and and the, the it just might have added a little bit of something it doesn't have to be a big naval yeah. battle but it might have added something they kind of um, get it in there at the start on the, with the really nicely animated start with the, the credits mm. they kind of get it in there yeah but they could have used stock footage and i wouldn't have minded um at all um and i felt like the aerial sequence in the biplane dragged a little bit for me um, I, yeah. I felt like it yeah. sort of was. I was like, okay, I've, you've done what you need to do now. Like, okay. And then I was just sitting yeah. there thinking, Portugal, Portugal. I, I, Matt was like, I was like, oh, Portugal were in the war. And Matt was like, no, they weren't, not till 1916. And then that ruined that whole bit for me, Matt. So I was oh, like, sorry, mate. I they're did breaking say, their neutrality. When I said <laughs> that, Rob, I did say, um, but we'll let them off. Uh, yeah, no, you did, you did, and we'll let them off as so, well because it's very nitpicky. But it's, but it, equally, whenever you get Portuguese representation in a war movie, you just don't. Yeah. So the fact they're in there is something. I mean, for me, it's it an enjoyable film, and it's you could sit down expecting one of these colonial Africa romps, and then it just changes into a revenge mm. picture, and I think that elevates it a little bit because a lot of the reviews I read. One of them is quite scathing. It described Lee as being like like a um, W.C. Fields character that's gone native. Um, okay, just too slapstick, and I don't think so. Don't I don't see that. I don't. I see think that. Lee Lee plays it really well. I think Moore gives a great performance. I think Holm gives a great performance, and I I, I think um, uh, Parkins does as well as yeah. as Rosa. And I my one critique of the film is the decision to have uh, Moore take the take the um the killing of Fleischer at the end because okay. Rosa is about to and then Moore grabs you know the rifle off her and, and there's a mad minute into Fleischer as he's trying to climb <laughs> it's out of brutal, the isn't it? Yeah, he yeah. rattles him off. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I thought that was Moore's arc of him redeeming himself for not being there at the time. I thought that was what it was. Yeah, that's probably mm. I 
it's just a minor thing that I, no, I, I get like, it. Well, you've deprived a, a grieving mother of the revenge that she yeah, yeah, true, you know, wanted. True. Um, yeah, yeah. So you can look at it a, a couple but of different I, ways. But then I like this sort of classic cliche villain thing where you're like, there's no way he could have survived the explosion. And then he, you see a hand come out of the water and I'm like, ah, he's back. I love that cliche. I absolutely adore it. I love it. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was so great to see it. And yeah, like, I think, and I personally, as I said earlier, I think it's more one of Moore's best non-Bond roles. It's interesting to see that African aspect of the of the Great War, which mm-hmm. you know rarely uh, depicted on screen. Although I wouldn't show this to someone and go, "This is what the war in Africa was like." No, no, um, it's not. I would it's not do that near at all. A good representation of it. It's again one of those instances where a film is set against the backdrop of war. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's inspired by, isn't it? I knew, as as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the episode, I knew from reading the the synopsis whenever we'd done Roger Moore or Lee Marvin films, and I gone, oh yeah, they were in Shout the Devil. Um, I hadn't seen it, and I, you know, having read the synopsis, I thought that would actually be quite interesting to, get, to like, for us to cover. Mm. And now that we have, I. I Turns out I was right. Like it no, you were. really interesting yeah, film. It's very enjoyable. Like as I, as we said at the start of the show, it's on YouTube. It's out there to watch. Um, I think it's on DVD as well. Maybe maybe a Blu-ray knocking around here and there. Um yeah. but yeah, it's it's a fun one. Like stick it on on a Sunday afternoon after your roast or after your Sunday lunch. Like it's a perfect film for that, really. Um, I think personally, I think you can't go wrong with it. Um, and yeah, I think that was 1976's Shout at the Devil. Um, please join us next week when we go through uh, Ridley Scott's Napoleon. It's already having some controversy, shall controversy, shall we say, um, from Ridley Scott's interviews um, and such. Yeah. Press releases and interviews this week. Yeah, saying you weren't there. Do you know you you weren't there? How do you know that didn't happen? Um, which I think is interesting. Um, and we'll uh, we'll put that to the test <laughs> next week. Um, will it be a hit or will it be shit? We'll find out next week, folks. We will. When we review Napoleon. Um, so stick with us again uh, on Fighting on Film for your war movie reviews. Um, you can find the entire back catalogue of Fighting on Film uh, on fightingonfilm.com. Um, start from episode one, see how fast you can catch up. Um, also, if you'd like to, join the Patreon. We've got some interesting things coming up in December. That's the best place at the moment to keep abreast of that. Patreons, uh, keep an eye out. There'll be announcement dropping very very soon for our december output and thanks for listening thanks for listening guys bye catch you next week bye bye